Wonderful. Great. Well, um, hello, everyone. Um, if you don't know, I'm James. I'm the Associate Vicar here. It's great to have you here. That's the standard first line of every talk. Your warmest welcome if you're visiting us for the first time, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, it's great to have you here. Um, do help yourself to coffee and tea as we go along. It's something we never say, but we always leave it out. The idea, it's out, so just, just go for it. If you want a drink, we want to create that kind of um, thing in the evening. Um, so just um, to say, we're all welcome. Um, everyone's welcome, uh, wherever you're at uh, in your journey, whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, whether you're just someone that's intrigued uh, and having a look, um, everyone's welcome uh, here. Um, and tonight, um, if you've come for the first time, we carry on carrying on on our series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus' blueprint for life. And we're in this together. Um, it's our all-year series. We're in it together. We're seeking to learn. We're seeking to put into action what it means to be a disciple. And by that, I mean a follower, a learner. Um, that's what it means to be a disciple. So we're all here as learners, people seeking to follow Jesus with all of our lives and often getting it wrong. Um, so that, that's the kind of um, the, the plumb line of where we're at this evening. We're trying to do this together and we often get it wrong. Um, a guy called John Stott, who you may have heard of, he was a good, um, good theologian, good, I think he was a church leader as well, but said this, there's nothing is more important for mature Christian discipleship than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. I'll say that again. There's nothing, nothing is more important for mature Christian discipleship than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. And as we look at um, his words in the Bible tonight um, and pray for the Holy Spirit to come and reveal those words to our heart, uh, my prayer, and you can have this prayer too, is that each of us, wherever we are on that journey, on that spiritual journey, uh, that we get that fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus tonight. Does that sound good? Some of what he says is quite challenging, uh, and you'll realise why I've said that in a moment. Uh, but we want to hear what's true and then work out what it means to follow him. So let me pray as we begin and we'll crack on with this evening. So thank you that there's mercy in your eyes. Thank you that you take us um, as we are um, day by day uh, and this evening as well. And thank you that because of the cross it's a level playing field. There's, there's no different levels uh, there's no one that's more holy than anyone else in your sight. Because you have made us holy. Father, show us what it means to live like that this evening. Holy Spirit, come. Open our ears and our eyes to hear you, to see you afresh. Amen. Amen. So if you've been following um, the Sermon on the Mount series, we've had a bit of a break um, over the Christmas period, then starting this year. But if you've been following, um, you'll see that tonight we've arrived on the subject of divorce, uh, which is quite a subject to go into. But this is what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. We said we'd do it, so we're going to see what he wants to say into it. Um, we're doing this series on it, so we don't want to duck at these moments on these slightly awkward subjects, on these slightly sensitive subjects. So tonight we're going to unpack it. We want to be asking, what are you saying, God? What, what was Jesus saying? And what's he asking us now to do about it? How does it inform our lives? Um, so clearly, um, I, I don't really have to say this, but I want to say this, it's a painful subject for anyone involved. 
uh, divorce. Some of you may have experienced it directly yourselves. Uh, you may be sat there this evening in that camp. Others may have witnessed parents divorcing. Um, and it could have happened for a variety of reasons and worked its way out in varying degrees of hurt and pain to you personally. So I acknowledge that at the beginning of this evening. So, yeah, that's just, uh, I wanted to say that for us. Um, so at the beginning, I, and we're also going to end here as well, I want to say that God's grace is bigger. God's grace is bigger than all this. Um, and that's my heart tonight as we look at this, uh, these few words of Jesus on this subject. And if anyone here, here knows the heart of our compassionate <laughs> Heavenly Father, it, it is his heart too. It's his heart too. There's mercy in his eyes. That song was perfect, the one we just sang before. Um, but we speak tonight, we want to get to the truth, we want to get to the heart of Jesus, but we want to be governed by the spirit of love as we go about it. So truth, the heart of Jesus, and governed by the spirit of love is what we seek to go. So what Jesus intends in his teaching, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, is to create a group of people uh, that's later called the church uh, that give hope to the world. That's the idea with these words. Hope that things can be fixed. Hope that dead things can be resurrected. So we read words. Shall we uh, open the Bible together? There's a few around on, on the shelf. You are going to probably need access to one this evening. It may not come on the screen. Um, so, so grab one now, switch it on, whatever, whatever, however you do that. And we'll go for it. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 31. This is how it goes. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's where we're up to. So these verses alongside uh, Jesus' other references to marriage and, and divorce are probably some of the most misunderstood of his statements uh, at all across the church and wider. And we have to remember that these verses in the Sermon on the Mount are in Jesus' teaching on uh, adultery, ultimately his teaching on lust. Um, and it is important to see here that Jesus hasn't changed the subject. Has anybody got one of these red Bibles with them? Uh, with them, sorry. With, if you open one of these red Bibles, you'll see, let me just flick to chapter 5, that as we go through, there are different sections. It's almost like he's finished chatting about adultery and now we're on divorce. But it's not actually written like that. This is the same section. This is the same little bit that he was talking about. Um, and it's important that we see he hasn't changed the subject. Um, many translations um, put the little heading there, and it's, e it's easier than reading one long discourse. That's probably why it's done. But it isn't a new subject, and that's important for us to understand, and I'll explain why as we go on. What Jesus is doing is he's using the example of divorce in the Sermon on the Mount as a further illustration of adultery. That's what he's doing. That's why it's so blunt. That's why it's so out of the blue at this moment. doesn't mean we're not going to talk about what he says about marriage and divorce, but I just want to put this into context for us. 
R.T. Kendall, who again is a great theologian, if you've ever come across any of his uh, books, this, one of the main books that I'm using as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is just getting wisdom. There are so many different people I'm having to get wisdom from because I don't know all this. <laughs> I have a sense of what the Lord might be saying, but there are so many thinkers who've gone into the original language. Um, so just to say that at the beginning, a lot of this is coming from various sources around the place. But R.T. Kendall says this, the issue here with what we've just read can be summed up in one word, lust. See, Jesus wasn't looking to bring this up as a separate subject, as I've said. Um, He's talking in the context of his teaching on adultery. A parallel example that we'll dip into tonight is in Matthew 19. Um, So if you want to just put your finger in Matthew 19, I've used alpha flyers to do it, because you may as well. We've got loads of them, so I thought I'd use them as little markers um, for this evening's talk. Um, So helpful that I've taken it out. Great. On page 986, if you want to find it yourself. But in Matthew 19, Jesus again was not angling to speak on the subject, but the Pharisees at this time, they brought it up with him. And they ask in verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus' first response, we'll, we'll get into this in a moment, in Matthew 19 was to point them to Genesis about marriage, about the original design for marriage. We'll get to that. But then comes the second question in verse 7. Of Matthew 19, this is why we need to have it open. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? But the reason they're asking these questions, uh, this question in particular, requires us again to jump to another passage. There's a lot of jumping, but we have to look at it in its context. Uh, In the Old Testament, and that's in the book of Deuteronomy, and it's a chapter 24. So again, if you have another finger, we have 10, so I figured we could probably do this. Um, Deuteronomy 24, uh, in the Old Testament, it's page 201, other side. Um, So jump to that for me. And I'll put my alpha flyer back in there. Perfect. Jesus, in his response to them, uh, is quoting the the religious leader's paraphrase of a teaching by Moses in the Old Testament on the book of Deuteronomy. Um, So we need to look at this first. So let me read it. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, on page 201. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if, she, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies... Then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That will be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is going to come together, don't worry. But to understand this fully, we have to understand uh, the role, the position women were in at the time this was written. It's not the position we're saying women are in. This is the position the women were in at this point. So women were not considered to be persons at this time, uh, but rather they were considered to be property. 
Um, a woman's identity was tied to a relationship with a man, her father, her brother, her husband, whoever it may be. And men had total control over women in the ancient Near East. It was a cultural norm at the time, and still is in, in some places around the world. But they felt they had a right to divorce their wives at any time for any reason. So Deuteronomy 24 lays out a few protections for women um, in a culture in which women were no more than the property of their husbands. So first of all, this Deuteronomy 24 passage requires there to be a certificate of divorce uh, issued in the presence of two witnesses stating the reason for the divorce. Requiring a certificate of divorce listing the reasons for the divorce would offer a woman at least some protection from a false testimony coming against her. Remember, she has no standing. So this certificate will at least allow some protection because what do you think the consequence of adultery was? Death, stoning, often stoning. Being expelled from the community and being stoned. By stones, not by any other way. And second, um, the second thing was because there was a formal certificate of divorce, it slowed men down from just chucking their wives out in the heat of passion because it got the community involved. There was a more measured response. You had to go through this process. So there's a second protection. And third, if a certificate of divorce was given and the woman remarried and got divorced again, Moses taught that the first husband could not marry his ex-wife again. But this was designed to prevent hasty, thoughtless divorce. The basic rule was, men, if you take this step and divorce your wife, it is final. You can't change your mind later and decide to marry her again. This is permanent. Are you sure you really want to do this? So I quite like that those things were in place, even in that culture. But the key source of bother, the reason the Pharisees back in the reading from Matthew were bringing this up, was the interpretation of the words something indecent in verse 1. Something indecent. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. And there were two thoughts of, um, schools of thought on what it meant, what something indecent meant. This is how you're going to realise why I'm going into these minute details in a minute, but this is where it had got to when Jesus was speaking. The first school of thought was known as, I don't know if I'm saying this right, uh, Shammai, which took the line that this indecency was the physical act of adultery. That was one school of thought. And the other one was called the Hillel school of thought that took a lax view that meant a man could divorce his wife for any reason. And there are examples where wives have burnt the dinner and the man's divorced them, lost interest in her looks, or became more interested in another woman. And if these things happened, they were seen as indecent on the woman's part. <laughs> Unbelievable. You burnt my dinner, you're indecent. Actually, I prefer that woman over there. It's indecent on your part. Isn't that unbelievable? Can you imagine that now? So with that context, the Pharisees basically wanted to know which side Jesus endorsed. That's where these questions came from. Uh, they clearly sided with the lax side, um, from, what, from what I gather, uh, with uh, their question in Matthew 19, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Um, and this was probably why Jesus seemed to know what was behind their question. He often knows. He may have known because of that, or he may have just known because he was Jesus, and he just seemed to know these things. Um, and it explains his response. You see, they were wanting to get rid of their wives 
for any reason and allow it to fit within the law that they claimed they were keeping. Judging by the context in the Sermon on the Mount, it seems to be due to lust that Jesus brought this example up. So what does Jesus do? He does a classic, a classic Jesus. Rather than answering their question, he proposes a counter-question. Way Wonderful. Has anyone ever noticed that happens in the Bible? A little bit. Has anyone ever prayed and had that kind of response? <laughs> Where it's like you ask him something and he kind of asks you something back. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm... I'm yeah. I have. Maybe just me, yeah? Great, people are nodding at that. Wonderful, it's just me. But this is how he responds. So we're back in Matthew 19, starting at verse 4. This is his question. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? That's the question. Then he goes on. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I love that. That's in a marriage service. Have you ever noticed that part in a marriage service? What God has joined together, let no man separate. It's a great prayer. But you see, Jesus hadn't turned up to talk about the grounds for divorce. That's not why he was there. Jesus had turned up with the intention uh, of talking about the original intention of marriage right back at the beginning, at creation. So rather than talking about how much you can get away with, Jesus goes, well, hold on a minute, what is marriage? What is God's original design for marriage? There are grounds in the Bible for divorce, you'd probably be shocked to hear, there are marital unfaithfulness is one abandonment is another in Paul's writings and if we follow the compassion of Jesus and adopt what many churches now do in today's world physical abuse emotional abuse any kind of abuse you don't have to be a punch bag you don't have to live with an unfaithful partner just wanted to say that but that is really a side issue in tonight's passage Jesus had come to talk about grounds for divorce, not come to talk about grounds for for divorce, but to remind us of God's intention for marriage. Start at the start, Jesus says. Not with technicalities, or by just avoiding it altogether and doing what you want. How did God make this? What was he thinking with this whole thing? You see, Jesus was wanting the Pharisees and wants us to recover the countercultural meaning of covenant. You may have noticed in a, in a marriage ceremony, it talks about making a covenant with one another. And this is going to speak to all of us, whether we're married or single, as we, as we go through this. So it's not a talk on marriage. But all around us, um, the basic storyline, whether um, the, the narrative of marriage that we see repeated again, be it in films, Uh, in songs, um, TV shows, books. The foundation of marriage is falling in love. Yeah? Is that what you see? Maybe we should do some star jumps. We met one another, we fell in love, we knew it. It was instant attraction. Does that ring a bell? Kind of stuff. It's quite a popular narrative. Over and against being in love or feelings of love, Jesus says that marriage is founded on a covenant. Marriage is not just a private agreement between two people for as long as you both shall love. 
Marriage, according to Jesus, is not just a legal arrangement for the purpose of inheritance rights. Marriage is a covenant. That is why the marriage ceremony, we don't ask couples to pledge to feel love for one another. That's not what happens. We do ask couples to pledge to be in love. We do not ask couples to be to pledge. Oh. <laughs> Technicalities, this is going around in my head. We do not ask couples to pledge to be in love with one another. What we say in the marriage ceremony is, will you love? Will you love? There's a distinction. It's not, are you feeling in love today? But will you love? We ask for an exchange of vows or commitments and they make a covenant between one another and God. Not feel love, but will you love? You see, we have to recover this one flesh idea for this to make any sense. This is why I'm going into all this background. Because unless we understand this one flesh idea, we've, we've kind of just missed the point. God's ideal is for us to have one flesh partner for all of our life. One. That's what he's saying. One sexual partner for all of our life. Jesus is saying that rather than getting hung up on technicalities, we need to be measuring up to God's ideal. Not concessions, asking what can I get away with, which is kind of what the Pharisees were saying and what Niall spoke of when he spoke on adultery a couple of weeks ago. If we go for technicalities like the Pharisees to make exceptions, asking the question of what can I get away with, then technically speaking, all sex other than one partner under God is adultery. Which, if we apply it to today, means all of us hearing this message right now who have had sex with more than one person are adulterers. I'm going somewhere. So hold, stay here with me. There's no judgment in Christ Jesus. Okay, but let's say what it says. It technically measures against God's ideal. It involves adultery. So if you're sitting here feeling kind of smug because you never did that, I never had any sex other than my spouse, or you're single and you've never had sex, you're free, that's wonderful, keep living for Christ. Just say that to you, I'm not poo-pooing that at all. But before you start to feel smug about this, let me read you something else Jesus said, which is what Niall preached on before Christmas, just to bring a little bit more context. The verses preceding what Jesus said in our reading tonight, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I'll tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I don't need to point out that applies to women as well. Although I have pointed it out. You see, God's ideal is not only that we would have only one sexual partner for the rest of our life in marriage, our spouse. His ideal that we would only think about having sex with one sexual partner for life, which would be our spouse. This is where they're challenging, this is where it gets really challenging for us all. Sex is good. Can you repeat that to me? A bit louder. No, I need it loud. I need it to be on the recording. Great. It's God made, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's doing the sex talk. It's great. 
But it's meant to be in this covenant. It's meant to be in this covenant. Any breaking from that ideal and anything that misses that mark involves adultery, Jesus is saying. So challenging, isn't it? So if we follow the Pharisees' legal, technical game, then next to God's ideal, technically, um, we're committing adultery every time we think lustfully about someone or of having sex with anyone other than the person right now that we're married to. So I'm pretty confident that that means almost everyone listening to this and everyone in this room is an adulterer, according to what Jesus is saying. Should we have a cheer? (laughs) Slightly dark cheer on a Sunday evening. We're in it together. We're all scuppered. What are we going to do? Maybe Jesus was trying to make a point for us all. Maybe. See, Jesus is not revoking what Deuteronomy 24 said. Um, He's not saying divorced people can't get married again. He's simply holding up God's ideal of marriage. He's holding up the bullseye to expose the hypocrisy of these Pharisees' self-righteous legal technicality game. What can I get away with is not the point. They're asking the wrong question. He's blowing that whole framework sky high and saying, you can't feel righteous about this. You can't feel justified about this. You're debating the wrong issue. And doing that, as Jesus so often does, he's showing us that we're all sinners. That we've all, we all have fallen minds, fallen hearts. That we are all far removed from God's ideal. And that we need a saviour. We're all in need of God's grace. Without it, we are scuppered. We're far removed from that ideal. Not just on the score of sexuality, but also a lot of other things. Thought, word or deed. That's why we have to give thanks. As we were singing earlier, we were giving thanks, saying who God was, proclaiming truth about what he's done and, and, and who we now are because of his grace. Because God's not our cosmic judge. Praise the Lord. He's our Abba Father. He's our beloved Father. And we're not defendants in a law court looking for exceptions. How much can I get away with? We're his beloved children. And our relationship with our Heavenly Father isn't about tripping through a landmine of legal technicalities, a landmine field. Just trying to do what's right, but but kind of trying to find the way through in any way we can. But really it's about receiving and reflecting the love of God shown in Jesus Christ for each of us. Loving one another as Christ has loved us. It's about receiving his grace and receiving the power of his love that transforms us from the inside out. See, Jesus Christ, uh, you know this, but I'll just say it again, he didn't... He didn't come just to give us another set of ethical rules uh, to tighten the belt on the Old Testament. It might feel like that sometimes. 
but he actually came to bring a kingdom where we receive the light of God into our inner being. And get transformed from the inside out. So God meets us where we're at, right here, right now. He's already met us tonight. Um, He's already covered us in grace on this evening. Whatever happened in the past doesn't matter. You might walk with a limp for a bit. But it doesn't matter in God's eyes anymore. He meets us right here where we're at and moves us forward. Because it's all the grace of God. We, we can't feel righteous about it. We can't earn it. It's a gift we don't deserve. We could say this every week, but don't we need to hear it? God's riches at Christ's expense. And none of us can look down on somebody else. You can't feel righteous because you stayed married while someone else got divorced. I've got plenty of friends who got divorced or had affairs or, or whatever else, but I can't look down on them because I haven't had an affair and haven't got divorced. It's just anti-kingdom to do that. We can't feel righteous because maybe you're single and you've not had sex and someone else is single and they have had sex. It's anti-kingdom to think like that. Grace sets a level playing field and God says step in. You see, the Sermon on the Mount that we'll be continuing with and there'll be more challenging parts to it. The Sermon on the Mount is what happens to a community of people when God grabs hold of them. What Jesus is saying in this message is that when God grabs hold of your life and of a church, then the way the church community approaches anger is different than the world around it. We did anger a number of weeks ago. The church community then has a different approach to lust than the world around it, a different approach to revenge than the world around it, and especially a different approach to marriage and divorce. When, grab, when God grabs hold of you, when grab God's holds of you, when, <laughs> when God grabs hold of you, key point, James, come on, keep it going. When he really grabs you, I don't know if you have been grabbed by him, but when he really grabs you, you change. You start living the Sermon on the Mount with all its quirks and challenges. When God grabs hold on you, you start living the Sermon on the Mount. So we need to pray on this night that God grabs hold of us because he's laid it out. He's laid out a blueprint for us. And the way we're going to do that is first we're going to sing in a minute together. We're going to sing some truth about who God is and who he says we are. Pick a song quick. Um, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Uh, we're going to um, come to the Lord's table. We're going to remember what he's done. And we're going to pray that by the Holy Spirit that becomes a reality in our lives. Does that sound good? Wonderful. So let's stand together. I don't know what your, I'll just say, I don't know what anyone's sexual history is in here. I know a few different things about various things and marriages and whatever. 
but God puts it on a level playing field. I don't know what you're hiding and have never told anyone this evening. I don't know um, what's been done to you and has made you feel impure on this evening. But God brings the light of life in this moment by his spirit and invites you to receive it where you're at tonight. Um, There's mercy in his eyes. So can I pray for us that we would receive that?